welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So several people in this church plant have told me that I need to watch the movie Greyhound. It was set to premiere in movie theaters when COVID the pandemic started and it was shifted to Apple TV. And so recently I finally had the opportunity to watch the movie and it was wonderful. It was, it's a really good World War II movie about a naval commander trying to escort troops and supplies from the United States to Britain during the height of World War II Tom uh, Hanks is the main actor. And there's an area in the Atlantic where the planes from the United States and the planes from Britain cannot go. They don't have enough bandwidth, if you will, in terms of gas and fuel to make it there. And so in that area, the ships, other than the protection of the convoy, are vulnerable to attack by German U-boats. There are no, no planes to protect the sky. And so when you begin the movie, you'll notice that there is a prayer, a Bible verse. It's a prayer card, but it's a Bible verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's a card that Tom Hanks looks toward or looks to repeatedly through the movie. And so when it came to an end... I realized, and I don't know if they intended this, but I think they do by the way they use the Bible verse at the beginning of the movie, in the middle of the movie, and at the end. I think they're trying to show you, to show the viewers, that the German U-boats represent sin and death. And that the boat that Tom Hanks is the captain of, or the commander of, I don't know the, exactly what his rank was, that is similar to the Christian life in Christ. And that is, they are being pursued by death and sin and evil. This captain and his boat are doing all that they can do to avoid being destroyed. And at times, they have to turn and attack the enemy. So it's avoidance and trying to put to death the enemy, sin and evil. And it was just impressive to watch this movie and to think about sin in our own life. That like this ship, we are trying to avoid sin. We're trying to stay away from sin and our adversary. Because it can cause great harm. It can destroy us. But at times, we are also called to put to death sin and evil in Christ. So, we avoid it, we put it to death. And you see this played out so well in this movie called Greyhound. And as we come to Mark chapter 9 this morning, we see Jesus talking exactly about this. The destructive nature of sin 
and how as God's people we are to deal with it. Let's pray. Lord God, may your word sink into the very depths of our soul and change us. Father, open our ears so that we may hear this morning. Open our eyes so that we may see the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of the word, the truth of scripture. Father, through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, draw us to this text and help us to know you and you only. Amen. So before we jump into our text, before we dive in, there's something that you might have noticed as we were reading through Mark chapter 9, and I want to help you understand it very quickly. You perhaps maybe noticed that verse 44 and 46 was missing from the text. What has happened to our Bibles? If you are familiar with the King James Version, you will know that verse 44 and 46 can be found there. So I think it's important that we understand this because we believe in the Word of God being without error and being true. And so I want you to know that scholars, archaeologists, biblical scholars, they have discovered that the earliest texts do not contain verse 44 and 46. The very early text of Mark chapter 9 do not have these two verses. And so they believe that translators down through the ages added verse 44 and 46 in their attempt to provide some clarity to the text. They were probably understood as footnotes to the gospel. But as time has passed, we have come to understand that that was not a part of the original text, and so it has been removed from Scripture. So I just wanted to provide that clarification in case you noticed as you were reading this morning. There are two points that we're going to talk about in our text, a receiving Redeemer and a ser- the serious situation of sin. Number one, a receiving Redeemer, and number two, the serious situation of sin. So we need to rewind. Let's let's hit the rewind button. Let's go back in the Gospel of Mark. Particularly in this chapter, in verse 18, the disciples, if you will remember from the sermon two weeks ago, they were not able to heal. They were not able to remove the unclean spirit. And so the the child was brought to Jesus and he performed the miraculous act. He made the child well. And so we've been gaining a better understanding of the disciples as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we've come to realize that they are confused on many levels. And so it was perplexing to them, no doubt, that Jesus could heal this person but they could not. And then, in our text today, they get word that there is a man who's not an apostle who is healing people, that he's casting out demons. So we know that they are confused. How can he do this and we can't do this? And then we see in Mark chapter 9, verses 34, 
they get into a debate about who is the greatest. Again, they are confused. There is someone out there who can cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and he's not one of us. And Lord, we want to know when your kingdom comes in all its power, authority, and fullness, which one of us is going to be sitting to your left, which one is going to be sitting to your right, who is the greatest? And if you will remember from Mark chapter 8, when Jesus talked to them about the coming of the kingdom and the suffering that he was going to experience and the humiliation that he was going to experience and the death that he was going to undertake at the cross, they were confused by all of this. So the, the, the apostles are perplexed. They don't know up from down. They don't know left from right. And so in our passage today, they come to Jesus and they are they're confused. Jesus, why can this guy cast out demons and he is not a part of our exclusive club? Jesus, this exclusive club where we are going to have power and authority and might. Jesus, we don't, we don't understand this because what we have amongst us is pretty special. And if you remember when the three disciples went to the mount and they saw Jesus in his transfigured state, they said, we're going to set up tents. They, Mark actually tells us, and it's quite humorous, that they were speaking foolishness, but they say, we're going to set up tents and we're going to serve you forever. There's no mention of, hey, we're going to go back and get the rest of the apostles. No, no, we're going to serve you. There's no mention of, we're going to go back and get the rest of the disciples, the followers that were beginning to surround Jesus. No, they were concerned about themselves on top of the mount during the phase or during the period that we call the transfiguration. So we have disciples here that they're just in an unusual state in their thinking. They have not grasped Jesus fully and they don't like the fact that someone is doing what they're supposed to be doing, but we know in verse 18 of chapter 9, they can't do it. So what we can gather from all of this is the disciples were thinking in terms of their own selves. That the disciples were thinking about who they were going to be when the kingdom comes. That the disciples were thinking about their position in the band of believers, if you will, that surrounded Jesus Christ. That their concern, their interest, and their hearts were all about what Jesus could do for them and how great they could be. And so they find this, this man, this person who has come to know Jesus and he believes in Jesus and he's apparently following after Jesus and he has power to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They find out about this and they're jealous. They find out about this and this destroys their idea about this special group that they're a part of. They have not grasped and they do not understand the width and the breadth of the kingdom of God. That God through Jesus Christ is going to call people from all walks of life, whether Jew or Gentile, into the kingdom. That the gospel was going forward to the whole wide world. 
they did not understand that Jesus is saying everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. They did not understand the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, 21 through 22, where he says that in order to believe, in order to become a part of Christ, to join the company of Christ, you must repent towards God and place your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one day soon, as we will see in our text, as we look forward in our text, they will understand. They will know this. One day soon, the disciples, the apostles, will grasp the coming of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But right now, in Mark chapter 9, they don't get it. They're thinking it's about themselves. They're thinking that Jesus is all about the twelve. That He has come for them. And that being a part of Jesus, being in the company of Christ, is going to result in authority, and it's going to result in power, and it's going to result in notoriety for them. How dare this person from the outside do this in the name of Christ? Who does he think he is? Isn't that familiar, though? Isn't that familiar to us? We often think that we have to have it all together and to have it all right to be followers of Christ. And sometimes we look down at our nose at those who don't have it all together. They don't do this and they don't do that and they're not like me. But Jesus is saying and Paul is saying in Acts chapter 20, 21 through 22 that to be a part of what Christ is doing, to be a part of the kingdom of God simply means that you repent and you place your faith in Jesus. And the disciples were having a very hard time understanding this. It's all for us. Is it really for those on the outside? And Jesus is saying to them, Jesus, Mark is trying to help us to understand in chapter 9 that it is. That it's for those who've repented, it's for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Our theological, excuse me, our theological tradition is defined by the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what we believe. This is what we have believed down through the ages. And the confession in chapter 14 says something about true saving faith. And I think it speaks well to what we're talking about this morning. Hear this. By this faith, a Christian, excuse me, by this faith, a Christian believes whatever is revealed in the Word to be the true, authentic, authoritative statement of God Himself. By this saving faith, the believer also acts according to what particular passages in the Word say. By this saving faith, the believer humbly submits to and obeys God's various commands. He trembles at God's awesome threats and eagerly embraces His promises about this life and the life to come. But the chief actions of saving faith are accepting receiving and resting on Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life in the power of the covenant of grace. According to the confession, according to Scripture, 
we are welcomed into the presence of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in Him. And this is a gift that comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit from our Father in Heaven. And so, this club is not an exclusive club. It's not a club for perfect people. You don't come into the company of Christ because you are a mother at home and you have all your children in line, you have everything in order, you have everything figured out, and your life is great, it's perfect. No, no. No. Jesus welcomes mothers who are struggling, who are having a difficult time, whose children are not always perfect. Mothers who don't have it all together. Jesus welcomes fathers. Fathers that don't have their act together. You don't see in the company of Christ flawless fathers. You see men who are struggling leading their family. Men who are challenged by loving their wife and their children well. Men who struggle in the business world. Men who don't always have it Altogether. That's who Jesus welcomes in to his company through repentance and faith. When you look at this, this group of people who surround Christ, you see, you don't see sinless students. You see children, you see teenagers, you see young adults who are also having problems, that have issues, that, that often fall, that sin, that break the commands of of God. But they are looking to Jesus. And He loves them. And He gives them true faith. And Jesus comes to all of us, imperfect people, and He says, welcome into my presence. Welcome to my club, if you will. This is for people who struggle in life. People who need grace. People who need love. The company of Jesus is a group of people who are accepted, who are redeemed, who are being made right, but who are declared righteous. That's who we are in Christ. And so because He is mistake-free, because He is flawless, because He is perfect, because He is sinless, we are given His righteousness and it covers a multitude of sins and mistakes and transgressions and debts and problems and issues. That's who Jesus is and that's what He has done for us. And He is trying to help the disciples to understand that the kingdom of God is broader than the twelve apostles. That the kingdom of God has a wide door for hurting people to walk through who need the balm of the cross applied to their hearts. It's an encouraging word to us when we see chapter 9 and we come to the disciples arguing about this other person who is able to heal when they can't. Jesus covers over their sins and their pettiness just like He covers over our sin and our pettiness. He welcomes, He welcomes us with open arms. Secondly, 
the serious situation of sin. Now, I want us to go back to the text, and I want us to look at 43 through 48 again, because this is important. If your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He talks about the, where you go, your feet. He talks about what you do, your hands. He talks about what you see, your eyes. Jesus, in this passage, is helping us see the pervasiveness of sin. It's everywhere. It's terrible. And it plagues us. In our, again, Reformed tradition, we've already talked about the Westminster Confession of Faith, but one of the things that is often mentioned is total depravity. Now, this is not utter depravity. Utter depravity would be complete and utter sinfulness and evil. We are not as sinful or evil as we could possibly be. One of my seminary professors used to joke, when we think of the most evil person that has ever lived, one of the persons, one of the individuals that we often think about is Hitler. But he said even Hitler gave us the Volkswagen bug and the interstate system. The most evil person that we can possibly think of that has ever lived on planet Earth, there was still some good that came from that terrible, horrible time in history. Now, it's He's joking when he shares that story. But what he's trying to say is, we are not as utterly depraved and sinful as we can possibly be as human beings. God, and we know through the covenants that he has established in the Old Testament, restrains the sinfulness of man. But we are totally depraved. Dr. R.C. Sproul is a theologian that passed away not too long ago. I want to read to you his definition of total depravity. The fall is so serious that it affects the whole person. Our fallenness captures and grips our human nature and affects our bodies. That's why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think. But the Bible speaks about the way in which the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. According to the New Testament, the will is now in bondage. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our heart. That is total depravity. And so when we come to 43 through 48, Jesus is saying, be on guard about the depravity that surrounds you. Be on guard against sin. And he metaphorically says that we must cut off our feet, our hands, pull out our eyes in order to avoid sin. Because the consequences of sin in this life are terrible, but in the life to come are horrible. It's beyond understanding. We cannot begin to grasp what hell is like. We don't know 
for certain what it is going to be like. Imagery is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we do understand this, that hell means constant judgment from God because of our sinfulness against Him. An eternity where we are under the judgment of God forever. And so Jesus is telling us this is a hideous thing. This is a horrible thing. This is a terrible, a terrible thing. Be on guard. Do what you need to do. Remember the illustration from the opening of the sermon this morning. Do what you need to do to evade sin. Do what you need to do, like Tom Hanks, the captain of the ship, pursuing the U-boat and seeking to destroy it. Do what you need to do to destroy the sin that is in your life because it can kill you. Here, 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our adversary is after us. And so, we have shelter in Jesus. When we come into His company, we are protected. We are loved. We are accepted. The Holy Spirit defends us and comforts us and helps us. Jesus is with us. We are in His presence. His love fills us. But at the same time, Scripture says, be prepared and be ready and be watchful and, and put the sins that are in your life to death. In some sense, it's like election. It's a two-sided coin. God has called His people to salvation. He saves us. The other side of the coin, excuse me, the other side of the coin, He tells us in His Word to profess our faith in Christ, to repent of our sins, and to call on Jesus, to seek Him, two-sided coin. This is well. We know that we belong to Christ. We are the elect. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. It guides us. It leads us. Jesus is with us. He cares about us. He is praying right now for us in heaven. He is singing and rejoicing over us. Our God loves us. But the other side of the coin, our adversary seeks to destroy us. That we should die to self and die to sin. That we should live for Jesus. That we should be holy like He is holy. Two-sided coin. And so when we come to this passage and we see the words of Jesus, our radar should go up. The radar of the Christian life. What am I doing to evade sin? What am I doing to die to sin? What can we do? What can we do? Five things. Number one, we call on the Holy Spirit to help us. Now, that's a radical statement for Presbyterians. We're going to pray to the Holy Spirit. That may sound a little charismatic, but that's... That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel that Jesus ministers to us through the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit can protect us. 
And so when we have particular sin issues in our life, as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a, as a businessman or a businesswoman, as children, as students, when we have these particular sin issues in our life, we call on the Holy Spirit. We call on the Holy Spirit in prayer to come and to protect us and to lead us, to watch over us. Deliver me from this. Help me to die to this. Help me to conquer to this. Help me to conquer this sin. Number one, the Holy Spirit. Number two, worship. When we feel the tide of sin crashing too hard in our life, we run to this shelter. We come to the place of worship as God's people. This is where we align our hearts with God. We come here knowing that Jesus is here and we open up our hearts and our lives to Him. And in the order of our service, even today, we confess our sins. And we are reminded that He forgives us and makes us right. And then we come to the Word of God and we are encouraged. When sin has a grip on you, not only do you call on the Holy Spirit, you come to this place. Number three, the means of grace. When we feel like our adversary is on the prowl and he is seeking us out, when he wants to devour us, we look to the means of grace. These are instruments that God uses to strengthen our faith. The Word, go to the Word, turn to the Word. Yes, you come to the Word and worship, but go to the Word Monday through Saturday. Prayer. When you feel like the sins of this world, of this life, are too much, go to Jesus in prayer. He is there. He is listening. He longs to hear from you. Go to Him in prayer. And then something that perhaps you have not thought about, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. God has given us these visible tokens to help us understand what He does for us. And so that when we see a child or an adult baptized, we are reminded that Jesus washes away our sin, the very sin that is attacking us. And when we come to the Lord's table, we taste and smell and feel and see the goodness and the grace of God. It's in our hands. It's in our mouth. God is saying, if you are my child and you belong to me, His blood atones for your sin. He is the bread of life that fills you. Number four, when you feel like the sin that surrounds you is too great, you feel like you're being trapped. Accountability. We are a fellowship of brothers and sisters united in Jesus Christ. Come to me, come to Reed, come to Jeff, come to the others and brothers and sisters in this group and let them help, excuse me, go to them and help them hold you accountable. They have to know. Allow them to pray for you. Allow them to walk alongside you. Enable them to encourage you. Confess your sin before them and seek out accountability, whether it's with me or with others. And then number five, confess. Confess during worship. Confess every day. 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We seek the Holy Spirit. We come into this place for worship. We rely on the means of grace. We hold each other accountable. And we confess our sins before a Savior who loves us and welcomes us and receives us and forgives us. It's great news that this very day, Jesus loves you so much that He welcomes you into His presence and He forgives you of your sins. There's nothing better that you can hear this morning. There's no competing message that the world has to offer that rises to that level. Jesus is everything and He welcomes everything everyone who trusts in Him. And that's what He's trying to help us and His disciples understand in Mark chapter 9. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank You for the encouragement of Your Word. Lord, as we look at the disciples and we see how they did not have it all together, we are reminded of the fact that we don't have it all together. They were imperfect. We were imperfect. We are imperfect. And so, Lord God, we celebrate that you open your arms to us, that you welcome people who are imperfect, people who, are, who have flaws, people who break your law, people who are sinful. That you welcome us with open arms. That you receive us and you love us. And you make things right. Father, may that good news be an encouragement to our souls this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.